Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Now, today we start a brand new series, and if you've got your Bibles with you, I want you to go to the very back, to the very last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation. We're starting a new series called Letters to the Church. Uh, Over all my years in ministry, one of the things I hear regularly is we should preach more from the book of Revelation. Three days later, someone else tells me that we should preach more from the book of Revelation, but I knew if I put those two people in the same room, they wouldn't agree in the way that Revelation's been interpreted. So uh, in wisdom, we are very careful in how we do it because you know what? God has spoken and the book of Revelation is God's truth. And the overarching story of the book of Revelation is this, God wins. Jesus has already claimed the victory through his death on the cross, which we've just celebrated at Easter. But one day he will return and already he holds the keys to death and hell and all those that find their name in his book will overcome. That is a high-level summation, but we can get caught up too much sometimes in arguing the detail, but it's a revelation of Jesus and the good news is that Jesus wins. We're going to start a book, a series that doesn't get into all the more challenging things at the back end of Revelation, but starts in the early parts where Jesus writes a letter to seven churches. They're physical churches that exist in the ancient uh, area of Asia Minor. They're seven new churches that were planted after death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. They're seven churches that are confronted by significant cultural challenges and political pressures and significant persecution to an extent beyond what many of us or probably all of us have ever experienced and so Jesus writes to his church there's something important about this number seven you see seven in the bible is a picture of completeness it's a picture of perfection so these seven letters to the seven churches are written to real churches in real places with real people that were gathering at a real time in history but there's something in this seven churches that wants to say this is actually a letter that is written to all the churches of all time so there's something in it that even though Jesus speaks to churches in their context that he wants us to hear you know we don't receive letters very much anymore who who loves going to the mailbox anyone here love going to the mailbox if it wasn't for the beautiful Joan Prince I wouldn't go to my mailbox now if you don't know who I'm talking about Joan who usually sits in the front row here God has given her the gift of letter writing And uh, she writes, if she finds you and gets your address, you will suddenly find yourself on Joan's mailing list. And it's not a write something, print it and put it in an envelope, it's handwritten goodness all the time. It's the only thing that excites my family about going to the mailbox because Sarah always gets a bunch of stickers in her card now. Now, I don't know how my daughter manages to do that, but she does. I keep telling Joan some donut vouchers or something would be really helpful, but stickers it is for now. But we don't get letters much anymore. At the moment, our our mailboxes are filled with political propaganda or uh, the specials at the local car detailing place or bills. We don't get letters, but there is something really powerful about a letter. I've received some personal letters across my lifetime that have been deeply impactful. See, when someone writes you a letter, you know that that letter is filled with purpose and intent. It's deeply personal and it's very thoughtful because no one takes the time anymore to write a letter to you unless they've got something they want to say. 
Some of the most powerful and life-altering things that I've ever had spoken over my life came in a letter. A few years ago, one of our staff retreats, Jason organised some people from this congregation and other places to write letters to each of our different staff. We didn't know that was happening, but we turned up to the start of our staff time together and we're handed a couple of envelopes with some handwritten letters from some members of our congregation. And I just remember at that time God used it because I was probably at a moment in my life and ministry where I was questioning, you know, God, is this working? Are we making an impact? Uh, What's happening here? And I sat in a room with these handwritten letters and I was a blubbering mess. Something powerful about someone writing something over your life. I've also received some of my greatest rebuke via letter. And I don't really want to tell you this because I feel like I'm opening myself up to, if you really want to get at him, write him a letter. But some of the most impacting rebukes I've ever received have come in letters because in the same way, someone that takes the time to sit down and address something to you and pour out their heart in a letter tells you that it's something that's deeply important and personal. Some of my greatest encouragements and some of my greatest rebukes. There's something powerful about receiving a letter. Now, throughout this series, we want to give you the chance to maybe rediscover the ancient art of letter writing. And in your life group books that uh, will be available to all of our life groups, one of the activities in there is the opportunity to write a letter to one of our churches, to one of Gateway's campuses, a letter of encouragement. Please don't go down the letter of rebuke angle. Uh, We'll read it, we just may not read it out publicly. But it's a chance for you to speak some words of life and encouragement over one of our campuses. I encourage you to think about doing that. But before we jump into Jesus' letters for the church, I just sat in this idea of the power of a personal letter. And just so that you you can see what it can mean, I, I thought this week I'd sit with the names of a few people in our congregation and say, God, what is it that you want to say to them this week? So I'm sorry for the two people I'm about to pick on. But uh, I've just been saying to God, I want to, I want to speak a word of encouragement over some people via the form of a letter written to you this morning. And uh, these two people actually really don't like the limelight. And so I know they're not going to like this moment as the whole church turns their attention towards them. But I've got a letter for a couple of guys here today. The first one is for you, Mr. Samuel Hins. If you want to know who he is, he's sitting right there. And he hates the fact that everyone's about to look at him. But write your letter, Sam, this week. It just says this, Dear Sam, you are faithworthy, you're faithful, trustworthy, and dependable. These are such attractive qualities. You're often the first one here and the last one to leave, and you're always willing to do whatever is needed. Those around you love you and are attracted to you. You are valued more than I think you would even know yourself. I also see a depth in you that I think many haven't had the privilege yet to encounter. I believe God wants to grow you as a man of faith in the sense that God wants to grow you in the gift of faith. You're already a man of faith, but God wants to grow you in the gift of faith. Someone who steps out into the unseen with complete trust in God's goodness, power, and grace. Peter stepped out of the boat because he believed Jesus, and he's going to keep calling you out of the boat, and you're going to be amazed in the way God chooses to use you to minister his power, grace, and healing to others. Finally, I I believe God wants to encourage that he sees your heart of worship. He loves it when you lift your voice and you raise your arms to him. He delights in this, and just as you seek his presence, he loves to be in yours. Thanks for being you. Your friend, Andrew.
Coops, can you just run that down to Sam? It's got my signature on it. Might be worth a bit after the forum today, Sam. (laughs) Now, this next person I think is going to dislike the attention even more, but Harrison Bell. Sitting right there, if you just want to look at him for a minute. (laughs) Dear Harrison, God wants you to know that he sees you and he knows you. You have an incredible gentleness and kindness about you. The scriptures tell us that this is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's a great quality in a young man and one that reflects the heart and the nature of God in you. When people experience this, they will see Jesus. Sometimes our world mistakes these things as weakness, but in God's economy, they are things only held by those who possess incredible strength. Never neglect these things because God will use them to bless others and build them up. God's gifted you, Harrison, with a sharp and a creative mind. In your work, you design and innovate, and this is just a small picture of how God sees you. He knows you intimately, and in creating you, he pieced you together as only a master craftsman could. In the words of the psalmist, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Harrison, God wants to know that he sees you and he knows you. Keep your eyes fixed on him and stay faithful even when the temptation is to give up or give in. The prayers that you pray right now that seem to fall silent, God's just asking you to trust him to bring them about in his good and his right time. Your friend and neighbour, Samuel didn't get that, Andrew. Bless you, mate. Keeper the mailman. I kind of feel like we should pray a blessing over those two guys, eh? God, we're just really grateful that Sam and Harrison are part of our church. God, they both have a quiet strength that just makes us better than we would be if they weren't part of us. God, would you encourage their heart? Would you continue just to give them ever-increasing glimpses of your goodness towards them? More encouragement, God, just to continue to use the gifts that you've uniquely given them to build those around them to shape, Lord, uh, for Sam as a dad and a husband to shape his family, for Harrison in his workplace and in his family just to build it and grow it. Pray your blessing upon them this morning, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Man, there is something powerful about a letter. This is something really powerful about a letter because they're always personal and they're always thoughtful. And, And my one hope this morning, Sam and Harrison, is that you are both encouraged. God just put your names on my heart and I thought, what, what does what, what's God want to say? And, you know, I do my best to interpret that. I'll never claim to be the perfect mouthpiece of Jesus. But just felt God wanted to encourage both of your hearts and spirits this morning. And I trust that you guys are encouraged. You see, letters only grow in their power depending on the person that writes them. If, if someone that is just a colleague or a peer sends you a text... It's okay to ignore it for a while. But if you get it from a CEO, you jump on it straight away. You know, when the coach of your footy team texts you, you make sure you respond pretty quickly. When your boss is ringing, you answer. So when Jesus writes a letter to his church, the church needs to stand up and listen. And so Jesus does just the very thing that I've done and writes seven personal letters to seven churches. 
And each of them gives us a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. And as we step into this series, I think it's going to be important for us to recognize that the revelation of Jesus actually takes it to a level that maybe some of us need to lift to in this season. See, revelation gives us a brand new vision of Jesus. Two weekends ago, was it two weekends? One weekend ago, we sat here together and we gazed at the rugged cross of Calvary and the empty grave. God became flesh, made his dwelling among us, and suddenly we got a glimpse and a sense and a picture of who God was through Jesus who came to be like us. We saw his heart, we heard his voice, we saw the way he interacted with people, and suddenly God wasn't something that we had to try and grasp with our mind. God was there in the flesh, and we got to see what God was like. And for many of us, we've encountered Jesus in that moment. He's become very relatable, very understandable, very close, like a friend and a brother. And that is who Jesus is. But Revelation actually wants to expand our understanding of who Jesus is. And so before I read the first letter, let me read a little bit of the prologue to it. Because Revelation is written by a man, John, who the Bible tells us is in exile on an island called Patmos. And he says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance of the hours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Theatra, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Just think about who's writing this. This is John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, who sat at the feet of Jesus, shared meals with Jesus, went on the road with Jesus, got to see the entire life story of Jesus unfold before him and now Jesus reveals himself to John in a completely different way and John's response is this I fell at his feet as though dead but then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid Jesus the majestic and powerful is the Jesus that we know do not be afraid I am the first and the last I'm the living one I love this I was dead But now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. You see, Revelation starts with a brand new picture of Jesus. The crucified Saviour, the babe of Bethlehem. The one who died on a criminal's cross is now exalted. 
His voice is like the sound of rushing water. His feet is like bronze glowing in a furnace. His eyes are like fire and he holds the keys to death and Hades. And John, when he sees Jesus in this moment, falls before him as though dead, yet Jesus still reaches over and with his very familiar voice says to John, it's okay, do not fear. This is the familiar Jesus, but now the glorified, all-powerful, majestic Jesus. And I reckon God wants to lift some of our vision of who Jesus is because he is so uh, personable and relatable and so close. But he's also the God of creation enthroned on high in power and majesty and glory who one day our faces will even struggle to gaze upon because of his goodness and his radiance. And as we bring these two pictures together, Jesus now writes to his church and he says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's a deeply personal letter from King Jesus to one of his churches, real people in a real place with real challenges that need to hear a real message from heaven. And what you'll find as we unpack all the different letters, there's, there's a little bit of a rhythm in most of them. They all come or most of them come with an encouragement from Jesus. They start with a revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I'm the one that holds the stars and walks among the lampstands. In other words, the angels that oversee the church and the lampstands as the churches, I'm the one that walks among you. It's a fresh revelation of who Jesus is. But then Jesus goes on to acknowledge and recognize and encourage them in who they are. And he says to the church in Ephesus, I've seen your hard work. I've seen your perseverance. You haven't grown weary. You've done well. I also see that you don't just accept wicked people and take that. You, you challenge them. You push that out of the church. And in a culture and a time where there was a whole bunch of cultural forces that were coming against the church and wanting to overtake it and distract it from the core message, this really mattered. And Jesus wants to encourage his church. Jesus always wants to encourage his church. They always think Jesus' message to us sometimes comes as a challenge, but always starts with an encouragement. And he starts wanting to encourage his church. He also recognises their context and the challenges that they face. But also in most of the letters, there's two churches actually that don't copper rebuke, but Jesus rebukes his church. He says, I've said everything I love about you, but now let's just talk about some things that you need to address. There's something really important to understand about Jesus' rebuke in his letters. His rebuke is always filled with hope. Jesus doesn't have a go at his church just to have a go at his church. 
Jesus never has a go at his church, so we all walk out with our heads downtrodden, thinking that we should just pull up our socks and do better. Jesus always brings a word of rebuke or a word of challenge because he actually wants to give his chance, his church a chance to transform itself and put itself back on the right track. Jesus' words always offer hope. And so to the church in Ephesus, he says this, you've worked hard, you've persevered, you haven't grown weary, you haven't tolerated the wicked. Your hard work's a good thing. Sometimes we don't talk about hard work as a good thing in the church, but Jesus commends them for their hard work and their perseverance. Hard work is a good thing, something that Jesus celebrates. You know, in 2012, when we started here at Ormo, when we first got together, it was initially all about dreaming and living in the idealistic world of what it was going to mean to plant a church. And then about three and a half minutes after that, the hard work began. And I would say one of the things that's marked this congregation and us together is we've worked hard and we've persevered. And I reckon it's something that's worth celebrating. That a group of people have come together, given their best, worked hard, persevered and not grown weary. Ten years in, our hope is only in the future. We're not just glorying in what's come before. But things can happen when you work hard. And when you work hard on your faith and when you work hard in the church, there's some other things that can start slipping. See, suddenly things that were driven by mission and passion and worship and devotion can actually get overtaken by things that just feel like they're laborious and mundane and needing to be done because that's just what you do. Sometimes things that start off that are driven by passion and mission can be overcome by busyness and just going through the motions. Sometimes things that start out of passion, devotion and mission, like a desire to reach people, can be things that we do just because that's what you should do. And Jesus says to his church in Ephesus, as I reckon he wants to say to us today, you've worked hard. But don't ever lose sight of the things that drove you in those early days. Jesus says, I want you to return to your first love. Sometimes when we read that in the scriptures, we think it's about this emotive feeling, but... But it was more practical than that. If you go back to the original language, what you find is that that the way that love is used in this context isn't just about an emotive feeling of, I want to feel more love towards Jesus and take a greater posture of worship. It's actually the love that actually drives the things that we do. There's a practical edge to love. And Jesus says you started to slip from your first love, the things that you did at first. It's time to return to them. One of the great privileges of my job is getting to do the journey with people when they first discover faith in Jesus. And one of the great challenges of my job is trying to actually slow them down a little bit with everything they want to do. Because when you first discover faith in Jesus and all that he's done for you, you just want to do everything you possibly can to serve and love him. And and new believers, like if you want to fill your volunteer teams... They want to set up chairs. They want to serve cupcakes at the Beyond store. They want to do whatever process they need to do to help children's ministry. They want to cook meals for those that are struggling. They want to to join the worship team because they played the flute when they were six years old and God's just compelled them to start up again. And and the list goes on and you're listening to all this and there's part of you going, that's awesome. You just want to give everything for Jesus. But you also know that at some point, reality is going to kick in and if you let them do too much, suddenly they'll backtrack and stop doing a whole lot. And so one of the great challenges is actually saying, yeah, it's that passion, that devotion, that drive, that, that, 
that love that compels you. Don't let it just get wrapped up in the mundane motion of doing the things you should do as a person of faith. I want to ask a question this morning. What is it that's drifted for you? And in the same way, I want to ask the question of what do we need to be careful as here at Gateway Ormo that we don't need to, that we don't let drift for us. You know, one of the things that drove us when we started was we wanted to be a church where everyone was welcome and that wasn't just spoken from the stage but that was experienced not just in the pews while the service was happening but in the three hours after that some of you guys hang around on Sunday. And we still want to be a church where everyone's welcome but welcome's not just a box that we tick, it's because Jesus welcomes us no matter who we are and we as his church believe that we need to reflect that. That no matter who walks through our doors, gets to experience through God's people the welcome of God himself. But you know what, it's really easy to get to the point sometimes where you go, man, my relational tank is full and I know they're new and I know I should say g'day but I know there's another exit from this church that's going to give me the chance to get to my car and get home on time because the footy starts at one o'clock and I don't want to miss it today because I get stuck in another conversation doing that welcome thing that we always talk about. You know, God started a heart in this church around how to welcome people. Let's not let it drift. Let's not let it get lost in the mundane. Maybe for you, the challenge is in worship. When we gather to worship and, and part of a gathered time is, is worshipping God through music and creative arts and we know that worship is actually a whole life activity. Every word, every action, every way we live our life is an act of worship to God. But when we gather in worship and have a dedicated time where we actually put aside the distractions of everything else happening in our world and focus our heart, our mind and attention on Him by speaking some words and saying some things of truth. Maybe for you it was something that just actually used to fill your tank. Now it just feels like another thing that you come to assess. Who's leading today, Jordan? Good. Like Jordan, that's all right. I'll enjoy today. Have we got to that point where suddenly worship just went from, this isn't about what happens up here, this is about what happens here. Yet as time goes on, that can drift and it can be more about an assessment of what goes on up there. And Jesus would want to say, worship's not about what, you think is going on for everybody else worship is about you just bringing yourself in fullness to me is it worship that slipped for you what about gathering Jesus said in the very beginning that it was a good idea to gather to be with God's people to encourage one another to open the word together to worship to show hospitality to give mutual love and care but we, we all live busy lives. Maybe for many of us, gatherings just become another thing that we've got to fit in the diary so that we can tick the box and say we did it again this week. But is the desire to be with others and the love of Christian community something that's just slipped from your list as well? What about hospitality? Just gathering around the table with people and just doing life. Is it something that's just become too time-consuming and costly. I, I don't know what it is. I could go on all day and we could add new things. The question really is, is there something that drove your passion for Jesus and your mission for him and your devotion to him that's just become mundane box-ticking exercise? God would want to say, it's time to come back to the things that you did and the things that you love at first. It's time to return to your first love.
We can get in the Christian faith very busy doing things for God that we forget that the thing God desires the most is for us just to be in his presence and at his feet. I need the band to come and join me. If you go to modern day uh, Asia Minor and the place where this church would have existed that Jesus wrote to, there's not a lot of thriving Christian churches. We don't know what happened at the church of Ephesus, but maybe in history, maybe history will show that at some point they didn't listen to the words of warning and their church lost the drive and the mission that Jesus had established them with. And if we let the business of church or the busyness of church or the work of church to take us away from the mission of the church and the one who calls us to himself for relationship and worship, we start to step into dangerous territory. Is Jesus calling you back to your first love? Let me make this really practical. For some of us, we might need to stop doing some things so we can start doing some other stuff. Everything you say yes to, you say no to something else. Maybe you filled your life so busy and, and you filled your calendar so busy and your kids have got so much stuff on and you, know, you just can't say no to anything but you've got no time just to exist in that place of sitting at the feet of Jesus. There's a really powerful story in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus visits these two sisters and the story in Luke 10 tells us this. As Jesus and his disciples are on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. This is a fascinating picture. Martha almost wants to publicly out her sister by putting Jesus in a position where Jesus sides with her argument and says, Jesus, there's stuff here to be done and Mary, the lazy sister of mine, is just sitting there at your feet. You tell her to come and help so that we can cater for this dinner and we can make this camp happen and we can make sure all the chairs are straightened and we can you know, get to the five people on my list at the end of the service that I need to get to today and I can make sure that I tick that box and I can sign that thing for camp and, 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 and Jesus says, well, just stop for a minute. Just stop, slow down. Jesus says to Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing. What's it look like for you just to sit at the feet of Jesus? To let his words just wash over you. Let his words shape you. Let his presence transform you and make you whole. To the church in Ephesus, Jesus writes this. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first so that you will not have your lampstand removed from its place. Lord Jesus, we come together this morning and, and for many of us in this room, we've served you for a long time. But I go out, I wonder whether some of us have just got so busy in doing the things of faith that we've actually lost sight of the very reason we came here and we started in the first place. Would you teach us to sit at your feet, Jesus? To soak in your word, to be overwhelmed by your presence, to have our hearts captured again in worship of you. 
Lord, to give of ourselves in love of others. God, to enjoy the company of your people. Just to be present. Father God, this will look different for every one of us, but this morning I just want to ask by your Holy Spirit that you would speak. Call us back when we need to come back. Return us to that place of our first love. I pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Hey, why don't we stand together this morning, church? Jesus writes to a church in Ephesus. And in doing so, he writes to us. But this morning, his letter is written to you. And as we sing a very simple and somewhat old song that just declares our love for Jesus, why don't you just take a moment as the band sings it over us this morning, just in prayerful silence, just to inquire of God and say, Lord, what is it right now that you want to call me back to? What is it that I've let slip? What is it that I've pushed out with everything else that I'm trying to do? What is it you want to call me back to, Jesus? Bring me back to my first love, I pray. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and our locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.